Hello and welcome to Southbank Centre's book podcast with me, Ted Hodgkinson. In this podcast, we bring you the best on-stage moments and backstage interviews with world-renowned authors and poets, plus the occasional gem from our archive here at Europe's largest art centre. As the finale of a very big year here at Southbank Centre, which included Michelle Obama and a live reading of The Odyssey, we were delighted to welcome Roxane Gay for her first ever UK appearance. Incisive, hilarious and courageous, Roxane Gay is a novelist and a vital cultural touchstone who in her essays and articles has turned her attentions to subjects that range from body image to board games. Gay's most recent book, Hunger, A Memoir of My Body, captures the experiences, traumas and attitudes which have shaped Gay's changing relationship with her body and what they reveal about society as a whole. Her previous book, Bad Feminist, became a New York Times bestseller, exposing the inequalities of the present with insight and piercing wit. Roxane Gay was in conversation in Southbank Centre's Royal Festival Hall with Liv Little, a curator, audio producer, filmmaker and editor-in-chief of Galdem, a fledgling media empire run exclusively by women and non-binary people of colour. In a moment, we'll hear from highlights of their conversation, but before we do, we're going to hear from my colleague and fellow literature programmer, B. Collie, you arranged a very special welcome for Roxanne. Can you tell us about it? Yes, I did. So we were very lucky to have the Octavia Poetry Collective come along as a kind of welcoming committee to Roxanne. We'd planned about a 30-minute Q&A with Octavia, and in the end, Roxanne asked them if they would stay until she went on stage. So it was a really wonderful welcoming committee, and uh, I think we're going to hear from Roxanne as to what she thought of the collective. So here's Roxanne on the stage of the Royal Festival Hall telling us about her experiences of Britain so far and meeting Octavia. This is your first visit to the UK, right? It is. To London. It is. How have you found London so far? I know there was no ice, I feel like. You couldn't find any ice. But, um... The ice situation is fucking killing me. Um, I like a lot of ice. I chew ice. Um, yes, I know I have anemia. It's all fine. Uh, I just love ice and... I didn't realize it was a particularly American thing, but apparently it is. Uh, because last night I ordered a drink and they brought it to me without ice and I was just like, oh, is that coming separately? <laughs> and then today I asked for ice. <laughs> and the young woman brought me three ice cubes. <laughs> I was just like, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, but, you know, it's, the UK is, uh, is um, interesting. <laughs> What does that uh, interesting mean? <sighs> the sun doesn't shine. It's very cold. People keep calling me sir. But other than that, it's, it's really great. nice. <laughs> okay. Yeah, other than that, it's great. It is no LA, but... It's yeah. not, but I will say, I just met the most incredible group of women from the Octavia Collective. Shout out, sir, in the audience. And they are excellent ambassadors for London. They are. So now They're I like it. Great. So I've got two members of Octavia with me here today. Octavia are a collective who are in residence at Southbank Centre. And we're going to have a chat about Roxanne's brilliant event. So I've got Destiny Adeyemi and Amal Saeed, both poets in their own right, as well as being part of the collective. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. So I wonder if we could start by you telling us a little bit about Octavia, how you collaborate as a collective, as well as working on your own individual poetry and projects. 
Well, Octavia is a poetry collective for women of colour. It has been, or it was, founded by Rachel Long, and we're based at the South Bank Centre, and we come together once a month, we write together, we laugh, um, have a good time, and Octavia have done incredible work since 2015. We've been featured on BBC World Service, in The Guardian, ASOS magazine. I think right now there are maybe 19 or 20 of us as members, so we come together and we just create. Yeah, as I'm a new member of Octavia, I've really enjoyed having a community of women and non-binary people to support me in my poetry journey. It's been incredibly enjoyable and it's been incredibly valuable in my development as a poet. I know, Amal, that you're a photographer as well and a filmmaker, and so I guess you bring in different art forms, different elements into the group as well. I think that's the incredible thing because for a really long time I just thought you had to be one thing and then I came into this community of women who are doing everything and, and weren't feeling shame uh, of not having just one thing that they were doing and for me so I do poetry and that came first and then it was photography um, and I started taking pictures of my family members and then sometimes film said it better than photography could now I'm also just dabbling with audio and 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 not restricting myself and that's been really fun to be around other women who appreciate that too and Destiny so you said you're a newer member of the group how have you felt that it's been sort of coming into this group of women? I've really enjoyed it because I've found access to mentoring within the group with Belinda Jawi. It's just been incredible being able to like develop my poetry and being able to like see different ways that poetry can be used, thinking about form and structure and things that I never really considered in doing poetry. Oh, great. That's really great to know. So I'm just going to ask you a little bit about Roxanne. I mean, I know that the conversation that you had with Roxanne before the event will stay as quite a sort of private moment between Roxanne and Octavia, between the four walls of the Green Room of Royal Festival Hall. But I wonder if you could perhaps just give a bit of an impression of what it was like to meet her. She's an incredibly captivating, funny woman. For me, it was quite inspiring. I love meeting amazing women of colour who are not afraid, unapologetically woman and black and beautiful. And I loved being able to see that as like a young black woman. She is very inspiring for me. And she embraced us, right? Yeah. Like she embraced us. And I think for a lot of people, kind of the, the celebrity is there for a lot of people. So I think when I stepped into it, maybe just like anybody else, it's like, oh my God, you're meeting this huge writer. And it's like, how are you going to connect? And and all of that really fell away when we sat down and we started talking and having we were having conversations and asking her questions. And, you know, it was funny. It was hilarious. Like we were laughing. And also equal amounts of talking about trauma and pain and the body, but also laughing about some of these things because if you're not laughing sometimes you're crying so it's like finding the kind of funny getting past the celebrity was incredible completely and you know Roxanne has that amazing ability to to switch between you know essays on trauma as you say and then essays on winning scrabble matches and you know she, she just encompasses so many different facets and I'm so glad to hear that you know you had such an amazing down-to-earth experience with her mm. And I was just going to ask you a little bit about uh, Bad Feminist and Roxanne's comments on feminism. I mean, she talks about feminism being messy, as we are all messy people. She says that it's complex and evolving and flawed. And also that notion that she feels needs to be challenged, that all feminists need to think in the same way or behave in the same way or say the same thing online. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. I think for me, the thing that really comes across reading Roxanne is this idea that we need to develop empathy 
And we need to develop kind of a shared concern for other people and other people's struggle. And that doesn't mean that we know what the other person is going through, even as being a black woman. There are experiences of being in a, in a bigger body or of going and experiencing the world in that body that I don't know. And so even, you know, being a disabled woman, I don't know. And so it's really important for me not to talk over other women's experiences and to not feel that just because I have a kind of a marginalized identity in some way that there aren't other people that are feeling that in bigger ways. I just finished reading Hunger by her, actually. And there's a part where she's talking about being on a stage with Barbara Streisand, I think. And um, there's a, a person, so they have a, an interpreter, BSL interpreter. And the person in the audience can't see them on the stage because the interpreter's standing in their way. And so the person's like, can the interpreter like move out of the way? And so she said that in that moment, because of my experience of like moving in the world as a bigger woman, I understand that like disabled women and, and, and kind of women who are hard of hearing and, and women, you know, we need to stand up and stick up for that. And so she was like, no, the interpreter is not moving anywhere just because you want to see. Just sticking up for people, I guess. That's what I get. For me, it's about the development of nuance, being able to understand that just because we all stand behind the label feminist doesn't mean that we're all the same. It doesn't mean that, just as you said, we all have the same yeah. lived experience. That's completely like untrue and that we all bring different things to the table that is important and valuable and deserves to be heard. Mm. I like that notion of empathy and, um, you know, standing up for the person next to you or standing up for the woman next to you. I think that's that's so important. I was going to ask a little bit about Twitter because uh, we know that Roxanne's very active on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And there was a point at which Liv Little, who was the brilliant chair for the event, asked about Twitter clapbacks. And Roxanne was talking about the emotional labour of being asked to educate people about microaggressions and racism, both online and offline. She said that this often falls on the shoulders of women of colour. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about that, that that idea of, you know, having to spend that time educating people on microaggressions and what they mean and racism and the impact of that. I think it's unfair and it's 100% true that it, it more often than not falls on black women to educate and it's unfair because it's not that there's not access to that knowledge all of the information about racism about microaggressions about the effects that these that this has on people is available but suddenly we become the bearers of spreading information and ensuring everybody is woke when it shouldn't be our responsibility it's it's your own responsibility to make sure that you're aware of the impact that the certain things you could do affects other people's experiences. And I actually adore her catbacks. Like, they actually get me so happy, but you can feel the annoyance and you can feel that, like, the fact that why does she have to do this? Because someone has chosen to be ignorant, someone has chosen not to research, and that is annoying. And also this idea that people can have access to you just because you're a public person and just because you publish books and you're an author, that people can come at you and ask of you things that you didn't want to say or do. And I think she talks about this in her book, Hunger, too. It's just like, just because she's out there doesn't mean that you can attack her body or attack her or come for her kind of knowledge in that way. And also because I have a weird relationship with Twitter, I always appreciate when I see someone using it in that way and kind of clapping back Mm -hmm. and saying, this is my space. Even if it's the internet, I can say what I want to say and I can assert my space. And I always find that inspirational because Twitter really scares me. (laughs) It scares me. It's like this big, deep space where people just come out of the woodwork. (laughs) 
Yep, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think we're going to hear from Roxanne in her own words now about that. I grew up never seeing other people that looked like me other than my family. It is only by the grace of being Haitian that I understood that there are places where we are the majority. And thank God, because we would go to Haiti in the summer and it would actually rejuvenate me. Uh, it can be really challenging because in predominantly white spaces, people tend to think that they get to set the rules and that they are the norm. And I have to do a lot of unnecessary education to correct and disabuse them of such nonsense. And so that's a lot of work and it's unpaid labor most of the, I mean, I'm paid for what I do, but I'm not paid for like that extra educational yeah, component, sure, which is frustrating. Sometimes I just want to hand out a bill like, that's going to be $395,000. When, when there are kind of, I guess, so few role models, um, I saw you speaking a little bit about like, the kind of burden of black art and the responsibility um, around being perfect. Do you feel like there's an expectation to be? There really is, and it's unfortunate. When you rise to the top as a black woman, as a person of color, you have to be excellent all the time. It's relentless, um, the pressure is unending, and some of it's self-imposed, but a lot of it is external because people are so unwilling to give us a chance and they have such low expectations, but also at the same time, they have incredibly high expectations. And so if you don't execute perfectly, they think, well, this is why we don't go to you. This is why you can't be trusted to have these opportunities. And so you know that if you don't do perfectly, no one else that looks like you is going to get those opportunities. Um, and it's a lot. So that was brilliant. And I wondered what your thoughts were about the use of the label of women's writing. Does this often get applied to your work or the work of Octavia? Do you think it's useful or do you think it's an arbitrary category? Oh God, I am so used to hearing this. It's like, it's, it's all the time. And the thing that it reminded me of was when I performed a poem and it was, it was quite sad. I'm not going to say it wasn't sad, but a woman came up to me afterwards and I think it was actually a man, not a woman. And he said something about it being confessional. And so me and my friend always laugh whenever we hear this word confessional because it's always women that are like called confessional poets. And it's like you're writing, it's a diary and these are your feelings. And, and when it's a man, it's not his feelings. It's rational it's kind of well thought out it's structured he's given it form and for us it's like you've just slapped kind of your feelings together and you've performed it and it's horrible because it, for us it's brilliant writing like we're getting to the root of things we're really being honest with ourselves and these are things that matter to us um and I think it's a shaming thing as well. It's like you're just, you just keep talking about the same things. Maybe stop talking about your pain but it's like if it's there we need to write about it and talk about it um, and perform it in ways and, and to people that also understand and respect and value us as writers and as women writers. Yeah, I find um, the label women's writing useful most of the time when it's in terms of representation and what Roxanne said about reclaiming. But I think a lot of the time the connotations that are attached to it can be very damaging. I've had similar experiences to you where like, my performances have been like talked about as raw. Oh, oh, yeah, we actually spoke about that in our that Q and A, and it was like, this is a lot of work. Like I put a lot of effort into this. It's not just yeah. a dumping of emotion. It's like, well thought a, out. Yeah, it's yeah. well thought out and structured. And I think 
that that those connotations that get attached to the label women's writing are damaging. Yeah, I, I think I asked this of Roxanne in asking about how she decides what she puts in and this kind of idea that you're so brave for putting this in. And so she checked me real quick and she was like, I'm actually not very brave. Like there are things that I decide to keep back and there are things that I put on the page. So there's a decision that's made there. And so as somebody who's reading this, you just think, oh my God, this is so much. And for her, it's like, this is just the surface. So being really careful when I come to reading other people's writing in that way as well. Thank you for that, Amal. I think you've, you've led me nicely onto my next question, actually, which is about trauma and it's about what you decide to put on the page and, you know, how you make the decisions, as, as you say. I'm also quite interested in what you've been saying about the way that people describe your work. I know that there have been a lot of studies recently about the ways in which women writers and people of colour have been reviewed or not reviewed, They're seriously lacking in terms of reviews of their poetry work. But I just wondered if you had any thoughts about writing about trauma, the thought that your family might read about it, but also how you make those very difficult decisions about what you put in and what you keep out. That's a really great question, actually, because I'm I'm thinking about this now in terms of I'm working on a manuscript and I'm working on bringing poems together. And it's this really scary process of, okay, this makes sense to write about now. And it hurts to write about this stuff right now, but it's going to be a different kind of hurt to also my family when they find out that this writing exists in the world in another way and not just on my laptop. And so even when I'm editing this and I'm like, and, and it's it's painful to edit. And, and I think that's when I know that I'm onto something real there. And when I'm like, for me, it's really about the work that I'm doing internally. So it's like, am I ready for this to be out there? And I think Rox, like listening to Roxanne helped with this because she said that she everything that she has in all of her books are things that she was ready to share with people. And even reading Hunger, like she's talks about the conversation that she had with her parents about the abuse and kind of talking around the truth and not getting to the truth itself and needing that distance but for me there are things I want to say and that there are people I don't want to I don't want them to read it but it's okay for now because I'm just in the editing phase and I'm trying to be easy with myself because I want this collection to exist and do you find it difficult to silence that inner critic or you know difficult to think about it in the world yeah it stops me from writing Mm -hmm. like it stopped me for like well over two years like I'm just coming back to it now so when I when I performed actually and I performed a piece for Ho Noir which is a really cool poetry night run by black women for black women and I performed this piece and a guy came to me afterwards and he was like where can I find this and where can I find that and it was this weird moment of being like nowhere because it's not out there and needing it to be in a collection because wanting to point to something and to say from this moment in time and it exists and it's real and I think I will get there eventually you will and we really hope you do thank you I will (laughs) hope so Destiny do you want to add anything to that about you know the idea of writing about trauma and boundaries you know what you how the editing process is and what you feel comfortable about putting on the page Um, I think I only kind of got to grips with like how much I put into onto the page when I spoke to Roxanne about it. I had actually wrote, written and performed like my child abuse trauma poem prior to meeting Roxanne. And it was good to like share and it was good to take ownership and it was good to let other women, non-binary men, like people know this is something that happens to a lot of people. 
once I spoke to Roxanne, I felt like I did overshare. Like I shared some stuff that it was like, I have not dealt with all of this stuff. And I'm happy I haven't put it in the collection yet because there is a lot of vulnerability that you face in like sharing things that you haven't dealt with yet. And I think only through doing what I had already done is how like I now understand the importance of editing and I understand the importance of only sharing things that I've already worked through. Mm. Yeah. Does it change like when you when you read it yourself and then does it change that feeling of like how you feel about the piece with an audience? Like do you feel completely different about the piece itself? When I read it by myself now, mm. I just get the inner critic. Like oh. I literally don't even want to read it because mm. I'm just like this is such a bad piece. But then when mm. I perform it in front of people, I'm just like, if one person feels not alone, this worked. Like, yeah. 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 That was also me. Yeah. I was like, if one person comes yeah, to me exactly. and writes to me. And has that happened yet? Have people been getting in touch in response to your work? I think so. I, I, I always say I grew up on Tumblr. <laughs> 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 I did. I did. I, I first started on Blogspot writing blogs and then I went on to Tumblr and I shared my poems there and I would get I would share poems and I'd get like um, these messages from women all across the world and I was like 17 18 and women who'd be like I have no idea how you did that but I felt exactly everything that you just wrote down mm. and so and I was completely I don't want to say anonymous but I, there wasn't a face to my work yet and so I come from that I think that's always been my base in terms of I want to say something, but I want to do it in a way that honors other people too and brings them in. But also knowing that it's not always for the audience as well. Like if it's true to me and it feels good to me, then that's my work. But I'm not writing for other people. I was doing that for a while. You get into this into this thing where it's like you post something and if it gets amount of likes, it's like, oh, this is a really good work or it's a really good poem. Or it's a really good photograph. And then you kind of lose your sense of well, what is it that I like about this piece? So I think I've had to like step away from the Internet a little bit and just kind of focus on the work itself. How did you like how did you take that time to step away? Like, how did you come to that realization that maybe this isn't good? It became really toxic, like really toxic. I think I um, attached my self-worth to it. Like in terms of when I would post something and it didn't do so well online, like I was like, I'm a really bad poet. So that's why I was saying earlier about Twitter. Like, Let me just step away from it. Let me step away from Tumblr. Let me step away from Instagram and let me just focus on the work. And and also I suppose that Roxanne talks about the fact that we're constantly changing and evolving and sometimes even she looks back at some of her work when she was younger and thinks so oh, perhaps I would have written it in a different way or thought about it in a different way but you know I suppose you yeah you grow and you change and you know you find new ways of doing things and new ways of working. We'll hear now from Roxanne about boundaries in her writing, uh, what she decides to keep in her work and what she decides to take out. Um, You describe yourself as being a a relatively um, shy person, but your writing really, really packs a punch. And for some, that might seem kind of at odds. How do you cope with uh, being so public and how do you navigate that boundary in terms of how much you share with the world? That's a good question. You know, it's really about boundaries. And so I have very firm boundaries about what I will and will not write about and what I will and will not speak about in public. And by sticking to those boundaries, I know that I always keep the parts of me that need to be safe, safe. And people, of course, do try to transgress those boundaries. But the older I get, especially once I turn 40, uh, the more willing I have been to push back. And so I just stick to my guns, so to speak. 
You write a lot about your personal experiences and, and a lot of really traumatic experiences. How useful has writing been, I guess, as a form of control or a form of therapy, if you were? It's been incredibly useful. Writing has saved my life. And I don't mean that in a trite way. I just mean it literally. Um, when I have been my, lo my most lost, my most tormented, I have written my way out of it. Even if I didn't write to clarity, just the sort of purging that comes along with writing has been incredibly helpful. And writing is not for catharsis on the page because then it's just therapy and go to your therapist. But I have found it cathartic anyway. And so um, it is something for which I am immensely grateful. Has that been something like throughout your life from a really young age that you've Absolutely. always used as a mechanism? Um, I've been writing since I was four years old. Of course, at four, I was writing what you'd expect, <laughs> which is like little symbols. But um, even when I was a young girl and I was really lonely and didn't really know where I fit in anywhere, uh, I fit in on the page and I fit in when I was reading. And so it has always been salvation. Okay, so I wanted to hear a little bit about your reading habits. Roxanne's talked about being an avid reader and turning to stories as a way of finding solace from being a child and on throughout her life. So are there any writers that Roxanne has shared with you or any that you just turn to in times of need or in times that you need comfort? This is something I'm slightly ashamed of because it's like reading is the only place where I like come to for like a childhood, I guess. So um, for me... For solace, I often retreat to Chibie, Things Fall Apart. Like I've probably read it like 500 times just because I feel at home and I feel safe. I love his writing style. And also, um, weirdly enough, Skullduggery Pleasant by Derek Landy. It's one of my like super childhood faves and it just makes me feel like a child again. I think that's something that a lot of young black girls are robbed of like being a child and being able to just have like frivolous things and for me yeah that's those are two of my favorites yeah I found so much solace in books with books when I was a child it's really funny though it's it's weird to tell people this but um when I was young I used to mom used to let me go and walk to the library by myself it was like 10 minutes away I think down the road and I always frequented the true crime section <laughs> <laughs> um, I frequented the true crime. I really do remember lugging home a huge book on Jack the Ripper. Wow. Um, yeah, That's amazing. truly, when I was a child. And I have no idea why. And I remember reading the book Ugly by Constance Briscoe. And it yeah. was a, she was a lawyer. And she's talking about all her childhood abuse. So from really young, I've been like drawn to people's like reading about people's trauma and people's mm. pain. And I, I remember like being in year five when I was reading Constance Briscoe's Ugly and I got in trouble for it. And the teacher was like, we have to tell your mom that you're reading this. This is a lot. But I remember really vividly also finding Beloved by Toni Morrison yeah. um, and feeling like, oh, my God, this is so interesting. And, and there was there was a ghost element to it and it wasn't a linear kind of narrative. It was interesting. It was what I wanted to like write and, and read. I also remember discovering Watson Shira's teaching my mother how to give birth and that was mind blowing because she was a Somali poet and I didn't know that was possible. I didn't know it was a thing. And I remember taking the book to my mom in the kitchen as she was cooking and I was like, Hoya, Hoya's a Somali uh, for mom. I was like, Hoya, look, like, let me just read something to you. And I read it and my mom was like, 
what the like what is going on here she writing about somali woman and i was like yeah like she's actually writing about somali woman that will always be the closest to my heart and also discovering the house on mango street or mango street by sandra cisneros and is these vignettes written from a perspective of a child and i didn't know it was possible to also write like that in terms of just her writing style i always thought that you had to be very kind of strict with the writing and and i didn't know that there was other languages or other kind of ways of speaking that could be incorporated into poetry and into writing and it was mind blowing Oh, wonderful. And so so many of those writers have kind of inspired you yeah. in form as well as content. Of course, yeah. Just the way that you write, the way that I speak about writing and what I consider writing and, and poetry and good poetry as well. And I suppose it's interesting, you know, what people feel is work for adults and what people feel is work for children. And actually, you know, many people go through very difficult experiences which can only be experienced in ad- work that is supposedly for adults. Mm. So it's interesting that you both kind of read work when you were younger from, you know, from both from all of those spheres. Okay, so this might be a bit of a difficult question for you, but I was going to ask if you had to name one thing that you took away from the talk with Roxanne uh, or your conversation with Roxanne, what would it be? I asked her about misgendering because I've been misgendered a few times and um, not feeling that they've denied my reality or they've denied me as a person. And like taking that to everything that I do that just because someone says something bad about my poetry doesn't mean they've denied me as a poet or yeah, I think that's one thing that I've taken from yeah, the session. I like that. I think for me it's about being completely unapologetic about what I'm writing, about walking into the space and, and kind of ha- knowing my reality and performing that reality and speaking that reality. Also speaking up for others clapping back when you need to clap back (laughs) is also really important because it's like no you've told lies about me and you haven't you haven't Mm -hmm. been fair or kind to me and this is my reality and this is how I'm living and this is really important remembering that that is available to you that you can clap back with support from others as well and often you find that you have really got that support from others when you do something like that exactly exactly So thank you so much for being with me today. It's really loved talking to you both. Um, I just thought we'd finish off by looking at uh, some of Roxanne's guilty pleasures. She talked about highbrow versus lowbrow. She talked about some of her sort of guilty pleasures. So she totally loves the Real Housewives of Atlanta, of Beverly Hills, of Dallas. She also talked about in this kind of crazy world of Trump and Brexit, about how we all need those kind of methods of escapism. And sometimes you couldn't really make up what was going on. So, you know, everybody needs somewhere to escape. Also, I feel that I should confess that occasionally when I know that I should go home and catch up on Brexit and things, I actually just watch an episode of The Only Way is Essex. I love that. I really do. I love that show. It is good, isn't it? Um, I just wondered if I could possibly get you to reveal your guilty pleasures. Um... RuPaul's Drag Race. Oh, great. I'm actually addicted. <laughs> and it's just it's just better than watching the news, to be honest, yeah. Oh, there's so many for me. <laughs> <laughs> I really do believe all I watch is trash reality TV. Like, that's really all I watch. But right now, it's love after lockup. 
Oh, I don't know that. <laughs> it's Love After Lockup and it's the series that like follows people who are in relationships with prisoners in America and it follows their journey after the person is released. I think I'm just really drawn to people who are desperate for love and will do anything for love. And I watch all of I watch all the love love and hip hops. Like me and yeah. my sister are obsessed. We talk about it all the time. Every Tuesday I'm there watching <laughs> it. I watch Housewives of Atlanta. I watch Married to Medicine. Um, I think I'm just really addicted to people like living their lives and and being in love and beefing with their friends and yeah. all of these things that happen to all of us. But mm. you know, yeah, that's brilliant. And I, and I loved it when uh, Liv Little asked if Roxanne had watched Love Island, <laughs> right, and she yeah. said she hasn't yet, but yeah. she's definitely going to get on it. <laughs> it's a, you get obsessed. You get addicted to these shows, though, right? Like I get addict, addicted to watching people. Like they're like your friends, yeah, aren't they? <laughs> truly. So thank you so much, Amal Saeed and Destiny Adeyemi. It's thank been you. really wonderful talking with you today. Thanks so much for listening. We've got a really brilliant programme of events coming up over the next couple of weeks. On the 25th of February, we've got the fantastic Marlon James with the first of his Black Star trilogy. And then on the 12th of March, we've got Angie Thomas, author of The Hate You Give, with her new book, On the Come Up. Make sure you subscribe to Southbank Centre's book podcasts for all our past episodes. 